Chapter Thirty Three of Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty by Imbert Saint-Amand. Translated by Elizabeth G. Martin. Chapter 33. The Temple. There are places which, by the souvenirs they evoke, seem fatal and accursed. Such was the dungeon that was to serve as a prison for Louis XVI and his family. The great tower for which Marie Antoinette had felt a nameless instinctive repugnance in the happiest days of her reign arose at the extremity of Paris like a gigantic phantom, and recalled in a sinister fashion the tragedies of the Middle Ages and the sombre legends of the Templars. It was formerly the manor, the fortress, of that religious and military order of the temple found in the Holy Land at the beginning of the twelfth century, to protect pilgrims, and which, after the fall of the kingdom of Jerusalem, had spread all over Europe. The great tower was built by Frère Hubert in the early years of the thirteenth century, in the midst of an enclosure surrounded by turreted walls. There ruled by cross and sword those men of iron, in white habits, who took the triple vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and who excited royal jealousy by the increase of their power. It was there that Philippe le Bel went on October 13, 1307, with his lawyers and his archers, to lay his hand on the Grand Master, seize the treasures of the order, and on the same day, at the same hour, cause all Templars to be arrested throughout the realm. Then began that mysterious trial which has remained an insoluble problem to posterity, and after which these monastic knights, whose bravery and whose exploits have made so prolonged an echo, perished in prisons or on scaffolds. Pursued by horrible accusations, they had confessed under torture, but they denied at execution. When the Grand Master Jacques de Molay and the commander of Normandy were burned alive before the garden of Philippe le Bel, March eleventh, thirteen hundred and fourteen, even in the midst of flames, they did not cease to attest the innocence of the order of the temple. The people, astonished by their heroism, believed that they had summoned the Pope and the King to appear in the presence of God before the end of the year. Clement V on April 20th and Philippe IV on November 29th obeyed the summons. The possession of the order were given to the hospitallers of St. John of Jerusalem, who transformed themselves into Knights of Malta toward the middle of the 16th century. The temple became the provincial house of the Grand Prior of the Order of Malta for the nation or language of France, and the great tower contained successively the treasure, the arsenal, and the archives. In 1607, the Grand Prior, Jacques de Souray, had a house built in front of the old manor between the court and the garden, which was called the Palace of the Grand Prior. His successor, Philippe de Vendôme, made his palace a rendezvous of elegance and pleasure. They shone the anacreon in a cassock, the gay and sprightly Abbé de Chaulieu, who died a fervent Christian in the voluptuous abode where he had dwelt a careless Epicurean. There young Voltaire went to complete the lessons he had begun in the sceptical circle of Ninon de l'Enclos. The office of the Grand Prior, which was worth 60,000 livres a year, passed afterwards to Prince de Conti, who in 1765 sheltered Jean-Jacques Rousseau there as Lettre de Cachet could not penetrate with its privileged precinct. Under Louis the Sixteenth, the palace of the Grand Prior had served as a passing hostelry to the young and brilliant Count d'Artois, 
when he came from versailles to paris the flowers of the entertainments given there by the prince were hardly faded when louis the sixteenth suddenly entered it as a prisoner it was seven o'clock in the evening when the wretched king and his family coming from the convent of the fouillons arrived at the temple situated near faubourg saint antoine not far from the former site of the bastille the temple enclosure at this period was not more than two hundred yards long by nearly as many wide the rest of the ancient precinct had disappeared under the pavements or the houses of the great city nevertheless the enclosure still formed a sort of little private city sometimes called the ville nul de temple the gates of which were closed every night in one of its angles stood the house called the grand prior's palace this was the first stopping place of the royal family which had been entrusted by pétion to the surveillance of the municipality and the guard of santerre the municipal officers stayed close to the king kept their hats on and gave him no title except monsieur louis the sixteenth not doubting that the palace of the grand prior was the residence assigned him by the nation until the close of his career began to visit its apartments while the municipal officers took a cruel pleasure in this error thinking of the still keener one they would enjoy when they disabused him of it he pleased himself by allotting the different rooms in advance the word palace had an unpleasant sound to the persecutors of royalty the temple tower looked more like a prison toward eleven o'clock one of the commissioners ordered the august captives to collect such linen and other clothing as they had been able to procure and follow him they silently obeyed and left the palace the night was very dark they passed through a double row of soldiers holding naked sabres the municipal officers carried lanterns one of them broke the dismal silence he had observed throughout the march thy master said he to monsieur Hue, has been accustomed to gilded canopies very well he is going to find out how we lodged the assassins of the people the lamps in the windows of the old quadrangular dungeon lighted up its high pinnacles and turrets its gigantic profile and gloomy bulk the immense tower one hundred and fifty feet high and with walls nine feet thick rose menacing and fatal amidst the darkness beside it was another tower narrower and not so high but which was also flanked by turrets thus the whole dungeon was composed of two distinct yet united towers the second of these called the little tower to distinguish it from the great one was selected as the prison of the former hosts of versailles fontainebleau and the tuileries the little tower of the temple which had no interior communication with the great one against which it stood was a long quadrangle flanked by two turrets four steps led to the door which was low and narrow and opened on a landing at the end of which began a winding staircase shaped like a snail shell wide from its base as far as the first story it grew narrower as it climbed up into the second the door which was considered too weak was to be strengthened on the following day by heavy bars and supplied with an enormous lock brought from the prisons of the chatelet the queen was put on the second floor and the king on the third on entering his chamber louis the sixteenth found a miserable bed in an alcove without tapestry or curtains he showed neither ill-humour nor surprise engravings indecent for the most part covered the walls he took them down himself i will not leave such objects before my children's eyes said he then he lay down and slept tranquilly the first days of captivity were relatively calm the prisoners consoled themselves by their family life reading and above all prayer forgetting that he had been a king and remembering that he was a father louis the sixteenth gave lessons to the dauphin it would have been worth while for the whole nation to be present at these lessons 
they would have been both surprised and touched at all the sensible cordial and kindly things the good thing found to say when the map of france lay spread out before him or concerning the chronology of his predecessors everything in his remarks showed the love he bore his subjects and how greatly his paternal heart desired their happiness what great and useful lessons one could learn in listening to this captive king instructing a child born to the throne and condemned to share the captivity of his parents souvenir des quarante ans by madame de bearn née de Toussel. all those who had been authorized to follow the royal family to the temple the princess de lamballe madame de Toussel, and her daughters mesdames thibault barcyre navarre messieurs de chamilly and francois hue surrounded the captives with the most respectful and devoted attentions but these noble courtiers of misfortune these voluntary prisoners who were so glad to be associated in their master's trials were not long to enjoy an honour they had so keenly desired in the night of august the eighteenth to the nineteenth two municipal officers presented themselves who were commissioned to fetch away all persons not belonging to the capet family the queen pointed out in vain that the princess de lamballe was a relative the princess must go with the others in our position has said madame de Tourzel, the governess of the children of france there was nothing to do but obey we dressed ourselves and went to the queen to whom i resigned that dear little prince whose bed had been carried into her room without awaking him it was an indescribable torture for madame de Tourzel to abandon the dauphin whom she cherished so tenderly and whom she had educated since seventeen eighty nine i abstained from looking at him she adds not only to avoid weakening the courage we had so much need of but in order to give no room for censure and so come back if possible to a place we left with so much regret the queen went instantly into the chamber of the princess de lamballe from whom she parted with the utmost grief to pauline and me she showed a touching sensibility and said to me in an undertone if we are not so happy as to see you again take good care of madame de lamballe do the talking on all important occasions and spare her as much as possible from having to answer captious and embarrassing questions the two municipal officers said to you and chamilly are you the valet de chambre on their affirmative response the two faithful servants were ordered to get up and prepare for departure they shook hands with each other both of them convinced that they had reached the end of their existence one of the municipal officers had said that very day in their presence the guillotine is permanent and strikes with death the pretended servants of louis when they descended to the queen's antechamber a very small room in which the princess de lamballe slept they found that princess and madame de Tourzel all ready to start and clasped in one embrace with the queen the children and madame elizabeth tender and heart-breaking farewells presages of separations more cruel still all these exiles from the prison left at the same time only one of them monsieur francois hue was to return he was examined at the hotel de ville and at the close of this interrogation an order was signed permitting him to be taken back to the tower how happy i was he writes to return to the temple i ran to the king's chamber he was already up and dressed and was reading as usual in the little tower the moment he saw me his anxiety to know what had occurred made him advance toward me but the presence of the municipal officers and the guards who were near him made all conversation impossible i indicated by a glance that for the moment prudence forbade me to explain myself feeling the necessity of silence as well as myself the king resumed his reading and waited for a more opportune moment some hours later i hastily informed him what questions had been asked me and what i had replied dernier année de louis 
says par françois the unfortunate sovereign doubtless believed that the others were also about to return vain hope during the day manuel announced to the king that none of them would come back to the temple what has become of them asked louis the sixteenth anxiously they are prisoners of the force returned manuel what are they going to do with the only servant i have left asked the king glancing at monsieur Hue. the commune leaves him with you said manuel but as he cannot do everything men will be sent to assist him i do not want them replied louis the sixteenth what he cannot do we will do ourselves please god we will not voluntarily give those who have been taken from us the chagrin of seeing their places taken by others in manuel's presence the queen and madame elizabeth aided monsieur hue to prepare the things most necessary for the new prisoners of the force the two princesses arranged the packets of linen and other matters with the skill and activity of chambermaids behold the heir of louis the fourteenth the king of france and navarre with but a single servant left him he has but one coat and at night his sister mends it behold the daughter of the german caesars with not even one woman to wait upon her and who waits on herself incessantly watched meanwhile by the inquisitors of the commune who cannot speak a word or make a gesture unwitnessed by a squad of informers who pursue her even into the chamber where she goes to change her dress and who spy on her even when she is sleeping and yet neither the calmness nor the dignity of the prisoners suffers any loss there was but one thing that keenly annoyed louis the sixteenth it was when on august the twenty-fourth they deprived him the chief of gentlemen of his sword as if taking away his sceptre were not enough he consoled himself by prayer meditation and reading he spent hours in the room containing the library of the keeper of archives of the order of malta who had previously occupied the little tower one day when he was looking for books he pointed out to monsieur hue the works of voltaire and jean jacques rousseau those two men have ruined france said he in an undertone on another day he was pained by overhearing the insults heaped on this faithful servant by one of the municipal guards you have had a great deal to suffer to-day he said to him well for the love of me continue to endure everything make no answer at another time he slipped into his hand a folded paper this is some of my hair said he it is the only present i can give you at this moment monsieur hugh exclaims in his pathetic book o shade forever cherished i will preserve this precious gift to my latest day the inheritance of my son it will pass on to my descendants and all of them will see this testimonial of louis the sixteenth goodness that they had a father who merited the affection of his king by his fidelity in the evenings the queen made the dauphin recite this prayer almighty god who created and redeemed me i adore thee spare the lives of the king my father and those of my family defend us against our enemies grant madame de tourzel the strength she needs to support the evils she endures on our account and the angel of the temple madame elizabeth recited every day the sublime prayer of her own composition what will happen to me to-day o oh my god i do not know all i know is that nothing will happen that has not been foreseen by thee from all eternity it is enough my god to keep me tranquil i adore thy eternal designs i submit to them with my whole heart i will all i accept all i sacrifice all to thee i unite this sacrifice to that of thy dear son my saviour asking thee by his sacred heart and his infinite merits the patience in our afflictions and the perfect submission which is due to thee for all that thou willest and permittest 
One day, when she had finished her prayer, the saintly princess said to Monsieur Hu, It is less for the unhappy king than for his misguided people that I pray. May the Lord deign to be moved and to look mercifully upon France. Then she added with her admirable resignation, Come, let us take courage. God will never send us more troubles than we are able to bear. The prisoners were permitted to walk a few steps in the garden every day to get a breath of fresh air, but even there they were insulted. As they passed by, the guards stationed at the base of the tower took pains to put on their hats and sit down. The sentries scrawled insults on the walls. Co-porters maliciously cried out bad tidings, which were sometimes false. One day one of them announced a pretended decree separating the king from his family. The queen, who was near enough to hear distinctly the voice which told this news, not exact as yet, was struck with a terror from which she did not recover. And yet there were still souls that gave way to compassion. From the upper stories of houses near the temple enclosure there were eyes looking down into the garden where the prisoners took their walk. The common people and the workmen living in these poor abodes were affected. Sometimes to show her gratitude for the sympathy of those unknown friends, Marie Antoinette would remove her veil and smile. When the little dauphin was playing, there would be hands at the windows joined as if to applaud. Flowers would sometimes fall as if by chance, from a garret roof to the queen's feet. And occasionally it happened that when the captives had gone back to their prison, they could hear in the darkness the echo of some royalist refrain, hummed by a passer-by in the silence of the night. The temple tower is no longer in existence. Bonaparte visited it when he was consul. There are too many souvenirs in that prison, he exclaimed. I will tear it down. In 1811 he kept his promise. The palace of the Grand Prior was destroyed in 1853. No trace remains of that famous enclosure of the Templars whose legend has no sombre a poetry, but it has left an impress on the imagination of peoples which will never be effaced. It seems to rise again gigantic, that tower where the son of St. Louis realized not only the type of the antique sage of whom Horace said, Impivadum ferient ruiniae, but also the purest ideal of the true Christian. Does not the name temple seem predestined for a spot which was to be sanctified by so many virtues, and where the martyr king put in practice these verses of the imitation of Jesus Christ? His favorite book. It needs no great virtue to live peaceably with those who are upright and amiable. One is naturally pleased in such society. We always love those whose sentiments agree with ours. But it is very praiseworthy, and the effect of a special grace and great courage to live in peace with severe and wicked men who are disorderly or who contradict us. He who knows best how to suffer will enjoy the greatest peace. Such a one is the conqueror of himself master of the world, the friend of Jesus Christ, and the inheritor of heaven. End of chapter 33 Read for you by Chiquito Craster, Birmingham, Alabama